Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're listening to Out of Oz, a podcast from Building 28 Church. Welcome back to Out of Oz, a Building 28 Church podcast where we confront the fantasies and fallacies of modern day Christian culture with compassion, conviction, and courage. I'm really excited about today's episode. Yeah, I know everybody else might not be, but this is something that I feel like <laughs> people ask all the time, and I think it's so important and critical to our entire religion, why we believe what we believe. Um, but Aaron... Tell us what we're talking about. I'm more today. excited now. Good. That little pregame we just did got, got me revved up a little bit here. Doesn't um, take much. Oh, I mean, I didn't realize that Bowers doesn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, so uh, I was oh, like, yeah, no, this will be us. You're excited. We're all excited I, today. I am, I am excited. Um, and what we hope is that you would share this because I think probably top three critical questions to our faith is, can we actually trust, trust this book that Powers has before him this morning? I don't have before me, but I've got it here on the computer, though, so that's all good. For centuries, literally for centuries, and the Bible has come under almost constant assault. The attempts to bury it, to discredit it, to marginalize it, to accuse it of atrocity or antiquation have been endless. It's been called outdated, contradictory, irrelevant, harmful. And uh, hate the, speech. Yeah. And the accusations, particularly in our day, roll ever onward. Even within the realm of Christianity now, the inability, or I'm sorry, the infallibility and the authority of the Bible has been questioned and ridiculed. And all of this leads us to the ever pressing and critically important question Can we really trust the Bible? It's a really good question because I don't think enough people are answering that question today. They're, they're just kind of taking it based on, and Peter was talking about this before, based on upbringing or based upon- Based on the history pre- channel. Presuppositions or based upon entertainment or based upon the words of others, or a lot of times based upon what I want to do and how much the Bible aligns or misaligns with that yeah. and, and would will credit or discredit it based on those things. So to help us answer all those questions back on the podcast again today, the professor himself- huh. Uh, Adam at Powers, some point, I think we superpowers. Can stop I know, I know, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> he's just at he's some gonna point. be here all season three. I mean, until, um, until the good rapture. to be here. So, good question. I really one think... of the top questions I get, probably one top two questions I get most frequently, is about this very thing. Because if you're really just relying on what Aaron said, like my parents believed it, or yeah, I mean, I've always just kind of said, okay, it's true, and never really thought critically about it. That falls apart, I think, when your faith is tested. If you're not a true believer, that that falls apart. Pretty quickly, which is why I do think it's important to, and this is not sinful to question the Bible and question its veracity and say, is it true? Because what it says is so important. And Aaron's going to get into what it says about itself. I think there are two main ways that this question is asked. Um, I think if you're a Christian, your eyes have been open, your ears have been open. It's different. Like you believe the Bible, you read the Bible, you think about it, you've thought about these things. That's not necessarily who the question's for today. It's more... To the total skeptic who didn't grow up in the church, who looks at the Bible as impossible fantasy that doesn't make sense. It's stories that have nice punchlines like lots of religions that tell us to be good and honorable and don't be bad and don't steal and kill. And they look at it that way, but they don't see the stories as true and they definitely don't believe it's God-breathed or that there even is a God. 
But then the other way that is really important to me and a question I get a lot is people who did grow up in the church, who parent, whose parents may be believers and said the Bible was true, like we said, and it fell apart when life got hard or their faith got tested. Or they wanted to have sex. Correct. Yeah. And they just say, listen, the Bible is nice. I get it, but it's not true. There's no way you can actually believe it's true. What about the books of the other religions that people are willing to die for that were spirit filled or God's word or whatever may be the words of a prophet? Why is it any better than that? Why is it any more provable than that? Why should I look at it any differently than that? Those are the questions I really want to answer today, which is a little rogue from the roadmap that Aaron did, but I think this is the more exciting discussion for everybody. And I've always said, and it's one of my favorite things Aaron does, and I'm sure Adam does in his sermons is he'll take this and he'll hit parts of this all the time because it's so important. And why we're not stupid, like Aaron talked about in the last podcast, like Christians have been looked at simple-minded and stupid and you just believe a book because people tell you to believe it is not actually true. So with that wind up, let's start with some ways we can actually, and Aaron, why don't you start with your, your thing of what you think is most important about the veracity of the Bible and how it's proven. I think the external evidence is really, really important and we'll get into that. Um, the historicity, the scientific accuracy, the archaeological evidence, the life-changing implications uh, in, a, in a far less eloquent way. I would regurgitate what Jordan Peterson said on Rogan's podcast here recently, that the Bible is not only true, but it is the foundation for all that is true in the world. Literally, that is a mind-altering for some, a mind-numbing statement, but it really is the way that we think uh, about the world, the way that we were actually talking about this last night at a, at a leaders meeting. And I was talking about how, and I just mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I was talking about finishing Bertrand's Russell, Bertrand Russell's book on why I'm not a Christian. And in like, I think chapter four, he's trying to dismantle the Christian argumentation for God. And one of the, he doesn't talk about the Bible a lot in that uh, other than ridiculing it, but for no reason, but he talks about the moral argumentation for God and that morality. And then he says, if it even does exist, and we're not even going to talk about whether it exists or not, whether good and evil actually exist. But morality does not need a God to define it. And then three chapters later, literally, and you can look this up in the book, he says, we cannot say that Jesus was a moral man because he believed in eternal punishment. And if you're tracking, what, what, what's happened there is he's taken uh, a concept that he dismisses in chapter four, morality. We can't, we can't know. And then he's basically said in chapter seven, we can know and we're the judge of what is moral and Jesus is not moral. Mm-hmm. And so either you're taking that mindset, which it, it just if you're paying attention, is so unintelligible because you're saying I am the arbiter of what's right and wrong, or you're submitting yourself even at times unconsciously to a standard that is beyond you and above you, which is the law of God written on our hearts, on our conscience that Christian or not, we understand that there's a law that we submit ourselves to. And that law is the Bible itself, like it's the biblical principles established in scripture that have stood the test of time that kind of govern how we should live our lives and how we're going to live the best, most responsible, most civil lives possible. And so I think all this external evidence is critically important, but I think the internal argumentation is really important as well. The most important thing? This is the first Probably, place to go. Well, because it is the book saying about the book. That's it. And so yeah. all the external argumentation is human dialogue about what we believe about the Bible, the internal argumentation is God speaking about what the Bible is. And okay, so I understand that some would say that's circular argumentation, but please follow me with this. 
if the Bible says that it is the Theonustos, you were talking about this from 2 Timothy 3 earlier. Theonustos. Breathed out by God. So we believe the Bible is inspired, the mm-hmm. book is, because it was expired by God. It was exhaled by God. Yeah. So it says things like that. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. Like, so it's perfect. It's without error. And on and on we could go. There's colossal internal evidence. Well, internal evidence completely breaks apart when it is disproven, mm-hmm. when it is proved to be false. And so what's happened is for 2000 years, scholars have tried, the most brilliant men who have walked the face of the earth have tried their best to discredit and disprove the Bible. And as one of my favorite theologians always said before he passed away, um, the Bible will outlive its pallbearers. And it has, it just has, like it just, it just will. Like, I mean, people who try to bury it over and over again, it just keeps rising up. Luther said, when the dust of battle has settled, and I'm not going to quote this verbatim, but basically said, when the dust of battle has settled, we shall hear the 66 say as one, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And, and that has throughout generation, all the attacks that have come, the Bible continues to verify itself. Uh, and I know, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit. I know there's people who are like, oh, it's full of contradictions, but it's, they're all very easily understandable, even, even by the basis of how we would interpret other antiquated writing Right. that historians and scholars would say, oh, in Plato's writings or in Herodotus' writings, this seems to contradict, Homer. but it's only because we're misunderstanding like what they're saying here, yeah. but they don't apply those same principles of literary um, brilliance to scripture. And so anyway, the internal evidence, what does it say about itself is false if it's disproven. And that's, P- Peter asked a question before the podcast, and I was trying to touch on this before Adam jumps in here, but we would, we would gauge scripture with any other ancient book or modern book for that matter. If the principles and statements of it are false, then we're like, this is not true. This is not trustworthy. It's not verifiable. But when they're not false, all we can do then is throw a, a fit because we don't like what it says. And that's really what's right. happening today. And nobody's disagreeing with you can disagree with the Bible or not like what it says because of how you feel or because of your life experience. Like, that's okay. You can do that. It doesn't make the Bible not true. Yeah, right. Go exactly. Ahead. Yeah, I'd, I would say the same thing to start, but I'd take it, I'd want to take it one step further. And I know you you would want to take this too. There is much that scripture says about the nature of scripture, that it is inspired, inerrant, without error, and therefore infallible, cannot ever fail. And because this is true and because it has proven itself true, for ages and ages and ages, the thinking person has to reckon with that reality. Yeah. I am not going to be, it is quite arrogant to me for the skeptic to say, I am going to be the first person in history to completely, totally annihilate the validity of scripture after so many failed attempts that this person is going to be the first one to me. That's arrogant. Yeah. It might not be the best place to start a conversation to call somebody arrogant, but so sometimes <laughs> it's necessary, depending <laughs> well, on the person. Maybe. <laughs> but we we just want to begin by saying this is what scripture says about itself. And therefore, because it has been proven true time and time again, we've got to reckon with that. This is the only issue I have yeah, with sure. that being your number one. I think it starts with a level of, I don't want to say intellect, meaning calling people stupid, but it starts with a level of understanding and whatever the opposite of ignorance is, 
that they would know all of this or understand like that people have challenged it and how they've challenged it and that they've challenged it different ways than the challenge yeah, I have. That's true. That's that, true. that I think is the kind of confusing part of starting there. Now, once you get the full picture, you may think that that's step number one and most important, but I actually think it's really beneficial to start with the external evidence. proof or evidence. Yeah, yeah. And then start from there and build on that. And then you get to the crescendo of, and it says- It says this about that itself. That it's yeah. the word of that's God good. and that's inerrant. Good. And that's the kind of what brings it all together. But I think that yeah. if I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking, I'm just a person that you know hasn't studied church history or doesn't understand all the attacks that have been leveled at the Bible and just say, I don't know what challenges they made. I don't no. know how. So I'm just going to believe you that other people smarter than me have challenged the Bible and it's the truth. That's what... It's one of those that it sounds it's, like that. It's an objection. It sounds people, arrogant on the other side. It, it's it's an objection people have to Christians all the time. Yeah. I'm just supposed to believe it because you say it. Right, right. So you well, say it's true and it's that story. Well, fine. So if I were starting the conversation, that's where I would begin. But how I've done this pastorally at our congregation is I've let the person with the question start the conversation. Correct. I've started where they are with those initial questions and then ultimately wanting to get to what we've just said. Correct. I Kind of like what you said. I so think, I think that's I think, probably the best I way think to go dismantling, about it. Because a lot of times when I talk to somebody, and I mentioned it at the outset, they'll talk about how the Bible's outdated or antiquated. It's old. Hmm. And I loved Lewis' stuff on this, that you can't argue from the clock. Like meaning that mm -hmm. we don't apply that to anything else in our world, we don't, we don't, we don't say, we don't say because they believe the world was round for 2,400 years, that's outdated. Like that's just, that's just antiquated. Right. Like that's just old. And we're like, actually, typically it's the opposite. We place more credence on a thought. Yeah. The older it is, the longer it has been around to be tested. But we have this, this naive thinking now that because the Bible was written hundreds of years ago. Oh, it's just, it's just not for modern man. Like, you know, and so what I do is just, just, I, I start where you do when somebody comes to me with, how do you believe this? I'll turn it back on them and say, tell me your problems with it. Right. Like tell me your issues yeah. with scripture. Like what are, what are legitimate things? And so you don't have to start by calling them arrogant unless they're being a jerk. Um, but we can just start with if they're being sensible and reasonable, and especially if they're wanting to know legitimately, you can start with what are you, what are your problems with mm -hmm. this? And then we attempt to answer those questions. That's kind of That's what we're going to do. Exactly. Peter's I think, the person coming to us saying. Peter's the one right. who questions. Because I, I think it's more <laughs> the common man question rather than the brilliant scholar. And I, but yeah, I think that. That's true. Okay. This is the That's last true. heady kind of thing I'm going to try to say about it. But the brilliant scholar already realizes he can't externally disprove the Bible, which is why he goes to. Is it God's word? Can I disprove that it's inerrant? Can I, as opposed to saying like, oh, somebody just made up this story. It's not true clearly. And I can prove that the story is not true. They don't even go there because they realize they can't disprove it that way. But the common man would come and say, why are the stories of the Bible any different than any other religious book? Um, they have similar principles. How do we know the stories of the Bible are actually true? Um, and how do we know that what God says in the Bible is actually God's word? So, and I think that, a lot of the external evidence is part of what I like from the spiel that I think is really yeah, convincing spiel. for, I call it a spiel, but I mean, I think it's a good thing for Christians to know and understand and be able to talk to people yeah. about, because yeah. you're not always going to have a pastor with you or somebody that can just, you, it helps you reinforce your own faith and belief in the Bible, mm -hmm. but also helps you explain it to other people that are having these questions. So let's talk about some of the external evidence and support. So 
for those watching, and if you know me, you realize this, and I'm sure there's plenty of this in Peter and Adam as well. But for me particularly, I am incredibly skeptical by nature. Like I don't take things. If you, if you have watched now our, really any of our podcasts, but especially on war, we just did that recently. You, you understand that I'm, I don't take things at face value. I don't take somebody's word for it. I want to explore and study. And so for me, this was a question that really descended upon me, raised in a Christian home, went through my rebellion, started asking the questions of how can we really trust this book? And while there is the internal evidence we've already talked about, I wanted to see because the external is what was going to disprove that internal. And so I think for me, and I'll just kind of start here, the archaeological support, there have been 25,000 plus archaeological digs conducted over the last 100 plus years related specifically to events in scripture. Not one of them has, it's actually fascinating that they'll unearth something that seems to disprove scripture. And then upon closer examination, it does the exact opposite. Um, And you can look at, uh, I have brought this up, but you can look at, um, for example, the walls of Jericho in the book of Judges and how when they uncovered, unearthed Jericho. And I think this was in the 1940s, but you can check me on that because I don't have all of it in front of me. But um, there was colossal devastation from the inside, fire, rampage, but the walls themselves had collapsed outward, which never happens in a siege. Like it just never happens. And they were stunned by this. And they were saying, hey, how can we explain this except according to and, and this, this discovery was done by non-Christian archaeologists, and they're going, how can we explain this? I mean, you've got things, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of different archaeological stuff, like coins that have been found that date back to a civilization or, or the Hittite tablets, if you're familiar with that. Scripture talks about a, a group of people called the Hittites who scholars laughed at um, right. f- until the 20th century saying this group never existed and they discovered over 10,000 Hittite tablets. Oops. Um, yeah. That's like, oh, wow, this actually verifies what Scripture has said and contradicts what historians or archaeologists or scholars have stated trying to disprove Scripture. And, so, and it's like something that doesn't – I don't want to say it doesn't even matter, but it's like – doesn't even matter. They could have called them whatever, but they called them the Hittites and then we find out. Well, it, it it's ma- like that type it of stuff. It matters where- to these scholars in the sense of Correct. if one thing is exactly. proven exactly. inaccurate, then we can start to pick apart the whole thing. And they're not mad about the Hittites. They're mad about what scripture says about morality right. and submission to God and the gospel and Christianity exactly. and the way to heaven and the way to hell. Um, but if they can pick apart one thing, then it disproves the entirety of it. So I think the archaeological evidence, for me anyway, is is really big. And you mean the archaeological evidence of the actual stories of the Bible? Stories, that, that they people, kingdoms, places, right. warfare, these events that took place. There's just such overwhelming evidence in the Middle East for these things. It's pretty fascinating. And, and, and people who just focus on this, biblical archaeologists, have a lot more research that you could look into if you're listening or watching, but it's pretty fascinating. Adam, what about the historicity of the actual pages and words Mm. of the Bible? That's such a good question. If someone were to ask me that, I would turn around and ask them the question, well, you have Homer's Odyssey or Homer's Iliad right there in front of you. Let's say, how can you trust that those are Homer's words? And where most people would go is say, well, people throughout history have found like six to 800 copies, which is a lot it's the second most found copy in all of history, right? There's six, six to 800 copies of the original that from looking at all hundreds of these copies, we know what the original autograph is, what it's called, or manuscript is, was and what it looked like and how it was formed. And therefore, we can kind of recompile it and present it and know with certainty and confidence that this is what Homer said. 
when you look at the Bible, we can know that these are the very words of God because while Homer is looked at in the common realm that we exist in and in the scholarly world, no one puts Homer into question because of the enormous amount of manuscript evidence. There's something like 25,000 original copies of the original autographs or manuscripts of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Something like 5,700 of Paul's letters, 4,700 of the Gospels, and you get to the Old Testament that just adds up and adds up. There's no book like it in the history of the world that has been proven time and time again that what we have is what was originally given. We're not going to talk translations. That's a different discussion. No, though there might be differences based on how you translate into languages from the original. And and for those tracking who are like, oh, that's not a big deal to me. I don't don't get that. That is how the test of authenticity is conducted scholastically on ancient manuscripts. Then you just don't believe anything. Yeah. How old are are the transcriptions? Because you don't have – so for all of these really, really ancient, you don't have the original – um, the actual original manuscripts, like, you know, we don't have the original New Testament letters of Paul there in front of us. You Red don't have pieces of bark. Yeah, you don't have <laughs> you don't have Homer's, you don't have Herodotus, bark. you don't have Julius Caesar's uh, Gaelic course. So um, to kind of build on what Adam said, because I find this incredibly remarkable as well and fascinating, is if you're going to apply that, which scholars do, you're going to apply, okay, how trustworthy is an ancient manuscript? You would go with kind of like the, the five or six leading historical documents. These are the leading historical documents. So one of them is by Herodotus. It's from the fifth century. The oldest remaining documents we have is thir- are 1300 years old, okay, from Herodotus. So we're, we're going back to around 700 AD. And there's only eight of those documents, those ancient documents from Herodotus. Eight. But he's never questioned. Then you go to Julius Caesar. It was written in the first century, clearly. The Gaelic Wars, fascinating historical documents. Um, the oldest documents we now have in existence, transcriptions of those are a thousand years old. So we're going back to the 10th century. And we only have 10 of those. Then you should take Tacitus, Roman historian, wrote in the first century, wrote about Christus, Christ. We don't question those. The oldest documents we now have of the translations of those are a thousand years old. And we have about 20 of those documents. You have Aristotle's poetics um, that date to the fourth century BC. So we're going back 2,400 years. But the oldest that we have of those are 1,400 years of the translations. And we have 49 ancient documents there. Okay, so hopefully you're tracking with me. Nothing over 50 at this point. And all well over 500 years removed from the actual writing of them. This is what we need okay. a whiteboard for. Yeah. Jeff's whiteboard. Then, and then you have, and Adam mentioned this, Homer's Iliad, which is, has the most documentation. This goes back to around the 9th century BC. So we're 2,900 years removed. And yet the oldest documents we have, listen close, are 2,400 years removed from Homer's writing. They're 500 years old is all. And we have 643 of those documents. Then you take the scripture, just the New Testament alone, because no one actually ever claims uh, a contradiction, tries to argue the Old Testament in spite of its brutality. Most don't. Most don't. Uh, it's the New Testament that comes under attacks because of how it applies the Old Testament. You have, and just, just so we're clear, you've had very few hundreds, if even dozens of these ancient documents that we rely upon, Homer, Aristotle, whoever. Um, with the New Testament, 5,600 manuscripts that date back to less than a century from the original writing of them. We have manuscripts from 130 AD. And all of them agree. All of them are in conjunction together. There is less than a 
0.5% difference, even in the vocabulary and the terminology and the grammar of these things, no discrepancy in the theology and doctrine of them. So to me, I'm just like, what I want to do as a skeptic, and if you're a skeptical and you're listening is maybe you can resonate with this. I want to land with the most feasible argumentation in my humanity, in my intelligence. I want to go, what makes the most sense? And for people just to blindly accept the writings of Josephus or Tacitus or uh, Julius Caesar or Herodotus or whoever, Aristotle, Plato, Homer, and then to try to pick apart the document by far more than 10 times the documentation and historical accuracy of these other historical writings, we don't have that luxury if we're going to be consistent intellectually. So, so therefore, yeah. the conclusion of said research yeah. is this must be what it claims to be, it's which been then preserved leads well. another yeah. thing. I must therefore reckon with that. So, what? And my favorite part of this whole discussion, always to me, the first time I heard it, it just clicked, and I'm like, "This is it. This hmm. is like the. This is the number." Is and Aaron mentioned it there, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. Is sure the amount of writing, the length of time from when it was written, all that. But in my head, when I think about my 130 years, you said is is yeah, 130 so, AD. So, so only only about 80 years to 60 so think years. about 80 years, right? So that would be like my grandfather. Yes. Mm-hmm. If I was going to write what he did while I was alive and what I saw him do, my dad who's still alive, would be able to say, that's not true. My sisters who were there, who didn't write it, and I wrote it, would be able to say, that's not true. Yeah, He didn't take you every Tuesday to get a toy. And because and to they loved him and were close to him, they would Mickey want Mouse pancakes. to prove like, that. They would literally be able to say, yeah. Stan, rise up, yeah. especially if I was claiming that he was Jesus or that he rose again after he died. Yeah. They would be able to stand up and say that that's not true, right? So talk about how that's an aspect of that's, that's, the only the 80 years. That's, yeah, that's why it's that's, so that's important. That's huge. And we're talking at most 80 years because a lot of the New Testament epistles were written in the 60s. Many of them were written in the 60s. So you're talking about about 65 years removed from the writing of them to the oldest documents we have of, of the New Testament. And so you're talking about less than two generations removed. So I've, I've compared it to, so Dale Earnhardt, and you've heard me say this, but Dale Earnhardt <laughs> passed away 20 years ago. Yeah, um, and, true. And, uh, I remember the race. What was it? Daytona 500. He passed away 20 years ago. My, my grandpa mm-hmm. was a huge Dale Earnhardt fan. And let's just imagine that Powers writes a book today. It comes out this year, 20 years after the death of Earnhardt. And it's filled with these wild contradictions mm-hmm. about Dale Earnhardt's life. Well, what have I said? Like, I, I've jokingly said that you'd have people from Cracker Barrels all around America rise up to refute those claims, though. They would say, that's not true, because we lived in the lifetime of Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. If, if these, these books that date back to 130 AD, 140s AD, had wild claims or misrepresentations of the writings of Paul, writings of John, life of Jesus, people would rise up who care about this stuff and go, no, 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 hold on a second. His disciples did not believe that he actually rose from the dead. Uh, they, 
they did not believe that he performed these miracles. They did not believe that he taught the way they taught or that he said, this generation will not pass to all these things take place. Like he, he didn't say those things, but no one refutes that historically. And on top of all that, the, the gospel accounts themselves, these historical books, which are so easily, for some reason, dismissed by people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so easily dismissed as, oh, these were friends of Jesus. Most biographers in the first century were either friends or close to friends of whoever they were writing about historically. But they wrote things that are not in contradiction to one another. They're different viewpoints, but they're not in contradiction to one another. And they wrote them within 12 to 20 years of those events themselves. And they used, this is another argumentation, Luke, brilliant historian, uses a lot of names. And that's basically divine footnotes to say, I arrived at the tomb and I saw there Adam Powers and Peter Treos. And what, what they're doing. Oh, you can go talk to those guys You still. can go talk to them. You can go talk to Cleopas and about his experience. Cleopas, a well-known person historically in the first century church. And it's basically a footnote saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to this person to verify that. Um, he also would use, like Luke especially, but even the gospel authors would use very embarrassing facts that if they're writing legends, you would never include. Like, like um, John outran Peter to the tomb. That or like, or like, or like. <laughs> I, Peter's I, reading that going, do you really have to put that yeah, in there, man? Or, or I love Come how, on. like, I love how in John 21, where, um, where Jesus says to Peter, um, you're going to serve me, you know, after post resurrection, you're going to serve me and you're going to die for me. And Peter's like, but Lord, what about him? And points at John, you know, and you're just like, that's so embarrassing. Like, but they put, yeah. or even like that the women were the first two. Yeah. To discover the empty Nobody tomb. Nobody would write that. And in that antiquity, context, that's, that's, that's not you would, Women were yeah. not, they could not stand in court. If to you want speak. to prove something, you don't call a woman. Yeah, you wouldn't call a woman. And so the only explanation now for why that would be there is that it actually happened. Like there's no other reason you would use women as your verifiable sources. Yeah. There's just so many things like that that you look at and go, wow, this is really fascinating how this all comes together to affirm the truth of it rather than to disband it. And literally Luke starts with, I write this account that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Yeah. And this is a historian who was not one of Jesus' disciples, who got a lot of his from firsthand eyewitnesses, which is just another, I mean, look, just, just another thing is so much of this, Paul writes in first Corinthians about the resurrection of Jesus and says, Hey, just so you know, there's over 500 people Who's in our day? We just need one or two. We just need one or two to be like, "Hey, I saw this. This is crazy." Like if one person was like, "I saw Ronald Reagan back from the dead," to talk to me, we'd be like, "All right, it's one person." If five people said that, we'd be like, "Hmm." If five hundred people said that, and we're willing to die for it, and and never refute that, that's another thing. Is like, I mean, we have people giving their lives who saw the resurrected Christ, namely the twelve apostles you know, including Matthias, who gave their lives uh, or at least were in prison till death for this cause. Not one of them ever went, hey, by the way, just, you know, it's kind of embarrassing now because my friends have died for this, but we just made all this up. He didn't really rise from the dead. Right. Like, no, they started this revolution around a guy that they have seen bodily, that they've touched, they've eaten with, who's resurrected from the dead. That eyewitness account is another just proof of historicity that that anyone would take and apply. Um, it's how we know that the revolution took place. The American Revolution is, is how we know the Scottish Wars took place. And whose side people accounts. were on, you know, yeah. it's like, it's how we knew where Robert E. Lee stood. You know, it's like, you know that because people tell the stories and things are written down and it's passed from one generation to the next. And if it wasn't true, people would rise up and, and well, talk. I think another fascinating thing is like history is written by the conquerors. Normally mm-hmm. it's written by the people who won the wars. Yeah. King Alfred. 
Yeah, but, well, that's true. Uh, that's true. But <laughs> Christianity never won this. Never won a war. Right. The Crusades were not a Christian endeavor, by the way. But they didn't win that anyway, so it doesn't matter. But Christianity didn't win a war. Christianity won through love, through self-sacrifice, through pacifism. Really, in the first three centuries, they continued on in the face of extreme persecution, and yet the bandwidth of this historically is so beyond, as we've already mentioned, other historical documents. Because, I mean, the only way I can describe it is because it's true. It's verifiable. So literally people were at the wedding and drank the wine, saw the pigs run uh, off the cliff, yeah. saw the leprosy cured. Th those people's nieces and nephews and uncles, and si they all yeah. existed and saw him with leprosy one day and without the next. And by the way, if you're moving- like right, that happened, that's moving, crazy to think about. You're moving with us right now. Maybe somebody recommended this to you and you're watching it begrudgingly or to try to pick apart. <laughs> and you get to the point, and I'm trying to be like very respectful here because I appreciate that you're listening or that you're watching. But if you get to the point of going, okay, okay, I, I hear this manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, scientific evidence we haven't even touched on yet. The Bible's not a scientific textbook, but there's nothing that the Bible says scientifically. It's only been verifiable. The, the circulation of blood in the system, the rotation of the seasons, uh, the spherical nature of the earth, like all these things like scripture talks about in the Old Testament. And so you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, all right, all right, but I don't like what it says. I just want you to understand like, or your friend to understand who says that, that not liking truth doesn't dismiss the truth. And so grappling with this and then coming away going, all right, you know what? It seems actually pretty uh, well-backed. Maybe it doesn't contradict itself. Maybe it is scientifically verifiable, archaeological verifiable. But I don't like what it says about me sleeping with my girlfriend. And or, that's fine. Or, like, yeah. I'm cool with that. Like, if you don't like what it says, that you doesn't don't mean believe it's not it, true. But don't like, say that you, you can't yeah, trust it yeah. and it's not true and it's not the word of God and that Jesus didn't write. Like, just don't say that. Yeah. But say, I'm not going to believe it. Like, I'm cool with my life, what I'm doing. I want to please myself. What were you going to say? Well, you perhaps, kept having a point. Let's hear Perhaps it. some might be listening. That might be the underlying issue, but perhaps there might be one more layer in there, especially in regard to what we said about, hey, hey there were a lot of people that were still alive when these things were written that could have contradicted it but that never happened. And so this proves the validity of it. Well, someone could come back and say, well, there were actually people that came and wrote things that do contradict it and at religious some leaders point, saying it didn't happen. like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Peter specifically. And it just so happens that you know, you have what you have in the Bible now because those are all in agreement and these were kind of shirked on and things like this. And that probably is something to discuss too. And the first thing I want to say there is, well, have you ever, have you ever read those? And nine times out of 10, probably 10 times out of 10, the answer is no. If you read, let's, let's say the gospel of Peter, there are, which is not by Peter. There are, Im right. The, these, the, we should first say all these. <laughs> They're the, dated way later. These are called them. the Gnostic Gospels yeah. that all come from the second and third century. So it just so happens that these were written at a time where there really couldn't be a living contradiction because all those people had died now. But if you actually read them, what you find is a different Jesus than the one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there's there's a funny story in the gospel of Peter. So our gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't mention much about the childhood of Jesus. We never see the resurrection described. It just happens and we're told about it in ours. Well, in all the Gnostic gospels, whether it's Peter, Thomas, or Mary Magdalene, these moments in particular are really embellished. And so, for example, the gospel of Peter has an episode of Jesus's childhood where he gets angry at a friend and he strikes him dead. Yeah. And the leaders of the village 
come and say, Jesus, what are you doing? And then so begrudgingly, he rose the guy from the dead and that was considered a miracle. And the Jesus that stands forth from these texts, we want to say upon investigation and reading those documents with these documents is not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, those give wildly different images and teachings and descriptions of who Jesus really was, which is why the early church and none of the church fathers ever quoted them as authoritative or as documents that that should be included in the collection of scripture. And if you're listening, you're like, well, he just said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are just in the Bible. No, what, what Adam's saying is those are the more ancient texts and the newer text. So it would be like, if we could put it in context, it would be like the Civil War took place in the 1860s. And within 10 years of the Civil War, you had historians who saw the Civil War take place writing about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And today, now 150 years later, you had historians going, Robert E. Lee wasn't really a general in the Civil War and First Manassas didn't happen and Gettysburg was only two days instead of three days. And, and, and so what we're doing is most people go, ah, we're not going to trust that because you weren't there. We're going to trust the people who saw it, like the people who were there, like that have been verified. So that's what Adam's saying is these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw these events take place or else Luke got his records from those who saw the events take place. Whereas these Gnostic gospels came along 150, 200, 250 years later mm-hmm. when people got ticked off at whatever or wanted to reinvent uh, a heresy around, you know. And it's happened a ton more times, just the later it gets, the less people believe it. And just because something was written 250 years later doesn't make it not true. Just if it's in contradiction with something that was written closer in time, then that's how you make the distinction between the two. So just because it was written later does not make it not true. Yeah. Right. Right? I want to make sure that we're clear with that. Because there were things written later. Absolutely. We mentioned a bunch of them. Yeah. Like the Didache, the letters of Clement of Alexandria. Even non-Christian writings, though, that we mentioned earlier that are true. A lot of them are true. They were written much later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One other thing I'll bring up here, which is really big, really big for our consideration in this is... The Bible is a book of prophecy. A one-third of the Bible is prophetic. So one-third of all the writings are predicting something. That doesn't mean something will happen in our lifetime. As a matter of fact, most of the prophecy was, was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah and in the first century. A lot of it anyway. And so, Partially. Yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> Part, which is partial, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at, and we've, we've talked about this on, I talked about this on a previous podcast, but you look at Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives, and all the things he would said would not that that would transpire before that tra- generation transpired, like before um, the expire, I guess. And then they all take place in the fall of Jerusalem. And you read this actually not in the Bible, not the fulfillment of those, but in Josephus' Jewish Wars and the writings of Tacitus, the Roman historian. You read all the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, saying, "In within a generation, which is forty years, these things will take place." And he says that around thirty-two A.D. So you have that. I think probably most fascinating to me, and it's a text that I've preached on many times. Probably my favorite chapter in the entire Bible is Isaiah fifty-three, this final statement of the suffering servant. If you go to Building Twenty, you've heard me even recently talk about this. But there is such remarkable prophetic pronouncement from Isaiah 53, which um, supposedly was written in the seventh century, seven centuries before Jesus came, things that he's going to be rejected by his people, that he's going to be despised, 
that he's going to die, that he's going to be laid in a borrowed tomb, that he's going to, after death, see his offspring, so resurrection. I mean, on and on it goes by how he's going to be striped, how he's going to be pierced when there was no form of capital punishment involving being pierced through, which is affirmed in Psalm 22 and Zechariah 9 as well. You have all these all these prophecies of how you're going to spot Messiah, which is so counter to how um, Jewish people think they're going to see Messiah even today. But it's, he's going to be suffering. He's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be acquainted with agony. He's not going to be someone that we look at and think is sexy or popular or beautiful. Um, we're not going to be drawn to him in these ways. And so be looking for this. He's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be raised in Nazareth. Uh, all these, Micah 5, 2, and, and there's just a collection of these prophecies. But Isaiah 53 specifically that, that holds a lot of these prophecies is so specific related to the life of Jesus. And during the Enlightenment, which we've talked about, they started to push forward this idea. And I talked about this last Sunday, but they started pushing forward this idea that there's no way Isaiah 53 was written before Jesus. It had to have been written in the centuries following Jesus. Because which, it was which, uncanny. Because it was right. so, yeah. so exactly. specific. You're like, there's just no way. Like, there's no way. So all the leading scholars and intellects for about 200 years until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1946, dating back to the second century BC, among which were many transcriptions of the prophecy of Isaiah. And then they're like, oh, like, what are we going to do now? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, let's pump the brakes because <laughs> this doesn't work anymore. It did predate the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. And he, he was pierced and scourged and rejected by the people and striped and resurrected according to 500 eyewitnesses. And all these things took place and you're going, geez, like, what do we do with this? And, uh, and now it's just led scholars, like some scholars to say, well, he must've never even lived. Jesus never lived. Like deny his historicity then, even though we have all this historical documentation, not just from the gospel writers, but from extra biblical sources that say, hey, Jesus of Nazareth actually lived in the first century, um, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so um, I just think once again, for all the ridiculousness that is thrown at Christianity, meaning that saying Christians are ridiculous for believing this, like it's really a lot of the attacks themselves that become ridiculous when that's not working. Okay, let's attack this point. Well, that's not working. Let's attack this point. That's not working. Like, oh man, it seems like this is true. I don't like it. I don't want to accept it. Like that's, that's not sufficient. Adam, what makes this book different than a lot of other religious books? Like in our, in our home group, we're talking about different world religions, you know, Hinduism and um, Scientology and Seventh-day Adventists and Mormon they all have books mm -hmm. that they're willing to die for, that right. they dedicate their life to. What's different? Because there are some similarities and some contradictions. Some of sure. them, some of them just say, "Yeah, Bible's cool with us too." Within our book, and mm -hmm. then some of them obviously reject it. But what makes it different? This might be subjective. I think that's okay. I think there's two things that I would say to that. First, I would say what makes the Bible unique is it has hands that grab hold of me, has feet that run after me, has a voice that calls me to it, things like this. So there's a living and active nature to it that is absent from any other work in history. That's, that's very subjective, but that's a powerful one. The second one I would say is that when you compare and contrast all these books and all these religions that represent these books and are founded from all these different books, there's really just two kinds of them. There's a bunch of books that say, here's all the things you do to get to God or to get to nirvana or to get to paradise or to 
get to the afterlife successfully and not be in punishment to have bliss. Here's A, B, C, all the things you've got to do. The thing that separates the Bible from all of that is here's a document that doesn't say, here's what you have to do to get to heaven. Here's a document that says, this is what God has done to bring you to himself. Not what you have to do. This is what God has done. And that's the thing. The centerpiece of our book is the Lord Jesus. And when he is compared to every religious figure in history on the planet, that's the distinction that separates him from everybody else. Muhammad came and taught, this is what you do. Confucius came and taught, this is what you do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus came and said, I have done, I am doing, I will do, I will continue to do until the day that I return. I also think there's a big difference. Like, yeah, theme-wise, I agree, and purpose and what it does to you and the emotional kind of connection and feeling to it. But I also think there's a difference in how many of those books have the same historicity and historical documentation, have as much descriptive nature to them. Because some Mm -hmm. of them are just here's how you become enlightened or here's what you do for a good life and a bad life, but don't actually describe anything. Right. And then also the prophecy I think is one that majorly sets it apart. Yeah. Yeah, Apart from everything else we've said, those are the two things that I would go to. I would agree with uh, when it says it's living, Mm -hmm. there's no other book in the world that's living. Like it's, and I know that sounds, but Hey, we've, we've covered why we believe this, but it's a revelation of God himself. The active revelation. Yeah. It's active. So it's not just like, it's not just inspirational; it's transformational. Like it, it can, it can grab hold of us. It's like, it's, so that was that was Luther's answer when 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 yeah. he was asked this question to his own context. Why is the Bible true? Yeah. He said, "Has hands, it grabs a hold of me. Has feet, runs right. after me. Has a voice, it calls me to it." Yeah, and I understand that some people. And that's a very once again presuppositional argument. You're right. arguing from right. the text, which I agree with, though. We do that all the time. Like you know, we do that all it's the time. Okay, um, <laughs> you know, uh, why, why does why does this ideology work for you, this philosophical construct or this health regiment, um, mm-hmm. because it's it's raw transformation. By submitting myself to it externally, in many ways, with, with Christianity, it is a transformation internally that, yeah. that takes root and takes shape. Um, you know, Second Peter chapter one, um, Peter's answering a lot of the objections in his day in the, in the 60s. And he says, uh, we did not follow cleverly devised mythos uh, stories or legends. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when he when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. And then he says, um, we ourselves heard that voice talking about the transfiguration, these supernatural stories that took place. Uh, he says, we have this prophetic word. And then he goes on to say this, uh, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or imagination sets it very much apart from what Muhammad would claim or, you know, what Joseph Smith, we talked about that, would claim. It's not private interpretation. It's it's for the masses. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man uh, or the imagination of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's very different than what, I mean, not that it matters if it's very different because there are elements of this. You mentioned it. Um, where people will be like, well, Christianity is just a regurgitation of other worldviews. No, 
uh, honestly, other worldviews are a regurgitation of Christianity. That's why almost everything we watch in Hollywood is a redemptive tale. It's like usually a little more of, me focused. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Joseph Smith's like, I'm yeah. not God, but but I would love that. I would <laughs> but I did write all this and found this stuff, and I am, you know, yeah, better yeah. than you. I'm just not God. But you should follow me in everything exactly, I say. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. I think in when you look at the differences, these people who wrote and who were eyewitnesses, like Luke, didn't try to be king of the world after writing Luke. Yeah. You know, like he just didn't. He's just yeah. like, this is what I found. This is what people told me. And it's the, it's the very antithesis out. of what you find. It's exactly. walk in humility, walk in gratitude, walk in love and care and truth, you know, and submission to the king who all scripture testifies of and is verified biblically and historically. So I remember when I was in uh, college, a brand new Christian, I was in a philosophy class and uh, that was my major, but I was I was told all these things about why the Bible's not true, and a lot of these things that we've talked about today came up. And I remember being afraid and being like, "Oh my gosh, what if all this is right? You know, what if they're right? All these things." I had this little, little bit of crisis, and when I went to study and look at the actual evidence and to look it up and pull on some of the threads that they threw in front of us, it was just like. Do these professors know how weak their arguments really are? Like, I don't think the majority of the non-believing world looks into these things. Because if they did, they would see how skinny they are, actually. And I don't think the majority of Christians have the confidence that we ought to have in how strong the evidence is on our side about the Bible. It's, it's reached the point today where most, and I do read at least twice a year, I'll read a book by an anti-theist or agnostic, and it's reached the point today where they have stopped arguing oftentimes the discrepancies of scripture because they just can't get there. And now they just make fun of the claims of scripture, like, mm -hmm. oh, the Bible's it, against homosexuals. Call it immoral. Like, you know, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, just yeah. say that the, what, or, what it teaches you know, is immoral, yeah. can't be right, as like opposed to... The book is fake, false, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right. That's, I agree. That's, that's a different conversation. Now. Right. Yeah. That's a different conversation. But for today, yeah. I think that's why they've turned to that. Because of everything we've talked about and all of the yeah. external and internal proof of it mm -hmm. and showing that it is the good book and it is true yeah. and accurate, which is wild. I mean, it, it when is. you read it, it's wild to think that this is provably true. <laughs> <laughs> it is. but And we've only kind of scratched the surface with this. There are other great resources out there. Anyway, I think that's about all we have for today. Yeah, that's good. Because it was, it was fun. It was... Uh, Indeed. Yeah, like Peter said, I think it really comes down to now. It's just like, you know, with any law, and you can literally erect any of that. You should say the speed limit law. You should say, uh, it stands, it's verifiable, it's there. I don't want to obey it. And there's going to be consequences for violation of it. Um, that might be a different conversation, but I can't just pretend that it's not real, like that that law doesn't stand. And, well, and you come, can until you're, you're a sovereign life. citizen. What, 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 I, what I mean, then you're a sovereign citizen yeah. where you walk into the courtroom yeah. and you tell the judge, you don't have any power over me. I don't recognize the United States general power. Exactly. And the, the judge throws them in jail. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, judge, the judge doesn't care. deny yeah. the truth of the judge and the law and the court yeah. while and, they sit in American jail. And what did Lewis say? Just because you scratch on the wall, the sun does not exist does not mean that it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in today. Hopefully it was beneficial for you guys, and we will see you next time on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Out of Odds. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. 
Out of Oz is produced by Building 28 Church and Podcast Royale. You can find out more about the show and Building 28 by visiting outofozpodcast.com. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can get each one automatically by subscribing in your favorite podcast app. Oh, 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 oh,